What does healing mean to you? Really just embracing love and nurture in the mode of repair and regrouping is kind of what healing means to me. podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And we are Revealing Voices. Season two, episode one, Revealing Voices. Yes, and we are excited about the year. We're going to have some wonderful guests to interview. We're going to have some a new feature called Healing Stories, where people will share their own testimony, their own story, and we will kind of step out of the way and, and let them reveal what they have to reveal. You know, the question, what does healing mean to you, is so resonant for me personally. I mean, it's really made a big impact on me, the way I think about life, my attitude, my uh, relationships. I mean, it really is, for me, very profound. Mm. And I really think it resonates with other people when we ask them the question, when it doesn't feel to them that it's like black and white, like you're not healthy, all of a sudden you're healed and the hand's been laid on you. You know, that's not at all our approach to that question. And some people kind of respond along those lines. I mean, you Mm -hmm. get some of that, but uh, it's just a wide ranging way people define healing and their experience with it. And it continues to compel me. I hope it, it does for our listeners too. One thing Eric did that we released on an episode, the Heartland episode, maybe 19, Mm. 18, 19. And one of the exercises we had participants do is to write on index cards, which I was just going to share with Eric. Right. I have uh, probably about 80 of these index cards. I forgot about that. And we may well post those on the website or highlight some on our program in the second season. Yeah. Um, Many reflections that were sometimes spiritual, sometimes medical, uh, sometimes instantaneous, sometimes a process. Right. I think people really put a lot of thought into it, Mm -hmm. Um, especially as our program relates to faith and mental illness. I think at its core, you know, healing involves a whole spiritual self, you know, body, mind, and spirit or strength. But in the realm of mental illness, healing can mean many things. One thing that, and this leads into something I want to highlight that has been an opportunity that's come across my plate, uh, SAMHSA, who is the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, has contacted me and wants me to do a video they want to feature in this social media campaign people who are living successfully with serious mental illnesses. Right. So that's what they see. They've been inspired by my blog, and they want to interview me. Um, And the idea of living successfully with a mental illness is a form of, of healing. You know, we aren't cured but we can live successfully. But what I want to reflect on a little bit is my reaction to that contact. You know, first I was very confused and wondered who me, you know, that's was that confusion. Why would they, why would they reach out to me? And then there was kind of an elation, you know, wow, me. <laughs> and I was, well, Tony, <clears throat> you are the man. Well, Hey, um, but you know, following on the heels of that, uh, was a depression. You know, I went mm-hmm. into a depression when I began to doubt, you know, why me? Yeah. And they talk about in many circles about imposter syndrome. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I went through. I'm, I'm still going through it. You know, the past three days, I've been very depressed. 
and mm. I have this this interview. The phone conference comes up Tuesday. Oh, really? And the video will be later. I still haven't come through this to feel better about myself. You know, something I think would be a great thing to touch base with them is SAMHSA has had a direct impact on our ministry. Mm-hmm. The, the whole health action management, mm-hmm. you know, wham, has been embedded in faithful friends from the first day of, mm-hmm. of that ministry. So I, yeah. that'd be great feedback for them. I mean, I that is an amazing testimony th- to their work. It is. I think you're right. I hadn't even made that connection. Maybe they should interview you. <laughs> Tony, you are the man. I'm the poster child of bipolar disorder, serious <laughs> mental illness. <laughs> Tony, that's great. Um, so what have you been up to this season of reflection and rejuvenation? Well, uh, I talked about a little bit uh, last season. I am working on a park project, and it is here in town, and it is uh, a pollinator park, also a memorial site for the biggest natural disaster in our county's history, which was a flood about 11 years ago. And I I did write a book about that flood. Watershed? Called Watershed. Uh, Started my own consulting, grant writing, service-related project that I call Watershed Philanthropy. And this park was the epicenter of this flood. 40 homes were lost. And it's just a really big emotional project for me, something I just feel very strongly about. You know, I've got about five books seen over there that are about pollinator plants, bees, butterflies. Um, Eric, we yeah. talk about in this coming interview, just following this, about uh, nature deprivation. What was the uh, nature deficit disorder? Nature deficit dis- disorder, and this is a very real mental health issue. And yeah, through Eric's work and others working alongside him here locally, um, you know they're turning what um, nature had devastated into something we can enjoy and be. Mm-hmm therapeutically rejuvenated. You know, I never thought about it, but you hear a lot about seasonal affective disorder. I mean, the more I think about it, it's like, well, that's as you're getting into colder months where you're less likely to be outside. And so in a sense, it could be related to nature deficit because you're just not getting out as much. I I had not thought about that before. It's an interesting thing to consider, maybe even to bring that up more as I dive into this project. What else has been going on? St. Peter's. Oh, yes. So I began my work as a faith and mental health advocate at St. Peter's Lutheran here in Columbus. Had a very good week of being introduced to staff. They have a a, a K-8 school, as well as the pastoral staff and ministry support. And also they have four worship services, and I spoke at those, was interviewed by the lead pastor, Mark Tyke. I will be primarily providing staff support on issues of faith and mental illness. They do a lot of substance abuse counseling, and they're looking to understand better about dual diagnosis and just a lot of lived experience. So a lot of what you're doing is education of their leadership. Yeah, that'll be the primary focus when I begin. Tony, that's it's, it's awesome that you have that opportunity. It really is. I'm grateful to St. Peter's and the people and staff there. They're stepping out on a limb that very few churches have stepped out of. I think in Tony Roberts, it's a very sturdy, strong limb. <laughs> well, let's hope so. A lot, a lot of fruit at the end of that limb. A lot let's going hope on. it is. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Tony, our guest is Amy Carey. Amy is a podcaster and a blogger. Her website is agirlinow.org. It's also the name of the podcast on iTunes. She actually reached out to us, Eric came across our podcasts, read our website, Mm -hmm. blog, shows that we're starting to get the word out about our show. If you're listening to this episode and you want to reach out to us, share your story, we'd love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amy has a very compelling story about being the parent of of a a daughter with mental health struggles Mm -hmm. and 
you'll hear that. Tony, as we get ready for our, our first interview here of the year, uh, we just wanted to talk for a moment about the diversity of, of thought, uh, the diversity of experiences of our guests. You know, in, in the process of revealing stories, we, we can sometimes touch places where people might disagree with, with our guests, where people might be very motivated by our guests and want to seek the same sort of treatment. Uh, and in both cases, we are presenting people's stories of health and healing and treatment and alter alternative treatments you may have never heard of. But that doesn't necessarily mean we agree with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, What's you hear take, a lot Tony? of well, you hear a lot of people uh, give trigger warnings, mm. and this is our time to put out a trigger warning. And it's not meant to say don't listen to this or you'll be hurt. We believe that thought evokes thought. And right. our listeners are able to have minds of their own. Mm -hmm. And we hope, uh, I know as I've listened to some already, it's caused me to redefine what it is I believe in. How do I feel about some things? Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully you'll do that and then share it with us. You know, write to us through our blog, revealingvoices.com. You know, we'd love to hear from you, and maybe we'll share some of that on, on the air later episodes. And with that, we welcome Amy Carey. Amy, thank you. Uh, it was a great interview. We look forward to sharing this with our listening audience. We are on with Amy Carey. Hi, Amy. Hello, Tony. Hello, Eric. Thank you for having me. You've been doing podcasting for how long? I've been doing podcasting maybe since before last summer. But you were a blogger before you were a podcaster. Yeah, I did do a blog for about two and a half years prior to that, which really outlined our story and experience and had so many amazing interactions with parents because of it that I just felt like I needed a broader audience and an opportunity to reach more people. That's good. The blog was called A Girl I Know from the beginning. Yes. And the podcast was layered on top of that. I think originally because I had been exposed to so many incredible resources and ideas and things that really normalized the stigma around mental health for me, um, I had this desire to share them all with the world. And the truth was the podcasting world was so unique and separate from the blogger worlds that using audio, I ended up really learning that I needed to start from the beginning of our story because it was a whole different audience. I went back today and read your very first blog post that really revealed what you went through you know, in your pregnancy and as a new mom, uh, which led you down a path of particular struggles with your daughter, your naming Violet. I'd like to hear from you more about that first moment, those first moments when you recognized that this was going to be a particular struggle for you. So, you know, it's interesting because there were so many different junctures of me having these realizations. And I think in retrospect, I can recognize that some of those moments in her infancy were uh, red flags. However, that was that is pure retrospect. That is not clear to me as I was raising her because I was so young and I'd never had a kid before. I think maybe the first time I really was struck was when I had my second child and I realized what a huge contrast it was to have a child who was more mainstream and it's not normal for a kid to not be able to sit down for more than five minutes. It's not normal for me to have to be constantly maintaining someone's energy and experience and engagement. Like my middle daughter was able, even at a, even at a very young age, to go into a room and read a book or play by herself. And my oldest mm -hmm. was just never capable of that. As I look back and reflect, those red flags were very apparent to me. And also the fact that I, you know, had a child with someone who also struggled with very significant mental health issues and social interaction issues that should have been a red flag for me, but I was 26. So who's that mm -hmm. bright then? <laughs> um, and then, you know, after having my second kid and having that moment and her uh, with Violet's struggle continuing to grow and get worse and worse and more mm -hmm. disruptive. I think maybe the next moment was when her school suggested we test her, 
which I don't understand why no one just told me years before that <laughs> because clearly she needed a test and I think people kind of pussyfooted around it and yeah, fear of me being upset by it. Yeah, there may be some caution, some caution in the school system. Which is all very tied into the idea of the stigma being such a deterrent from people getting the help that they need. I would have saved her years of struggle right. had someone just said to me, it's, I think maybe she needs an evaluation. What age was that? Um, I'm going to say her first one was in first grade. She started to struggle in school. She started, you know, while she was initially and always has been as I look through these old videos I'm like cracking up because she's she was always dancing she was really fierce really passionate and always existed in extremes she was never like gray she was either black mm. or white she was either really happy and really wild and having the best time or right. really sad and quiet and irritable and annoying and difficult in school she was a total leader she was a really good tester in the beginning, got into this amazing private school. We did all the interviews. She wowed everyone in the interviews because she's always been very verbal. And suddenly she was unable to share her friends. And she also, which I learned from a therapist later, this is like a really significant thing, was she was not able to immerse herself in pretend play. As they you know, go through mapping your brain when you're a little bit older, they will tell you that that is a real like kind of synapse dysfunction because using your imagination and being able to be in a world of pretend play is so huge. That was a big one, not being able to share friends and not being able to maintain friendships. And then she became, um, you know, because she was getting these terrible reactions from school and other people in our lives, I think that started to erode her self-esteem. So she was about six, seven when we realized something was really serious that was going on. We got the results back from the psychoeducational evaluation. And I think that was a real turning point for me because I uh, understood then that her acting out was out of sadness instead of anger. Like she wasn't an angry kid. She just manifested mm. her sadness and anger. So that was a big turning point for me and my husband who, you know, this created a lot of tension in our marriage. And that really helped us like, oh my God, this kid just needs help. Like this poor child, like we've been expecting her to exist in this world when her brain is so chaotic. Like how can she possibly function? The fact that she's made it that far was amazing, you know? Yeah. So then she went to tons of different therapists. Uh, we reluctantly fell into trying medication, which I really pushed off until the last second. I mean, we mm. tried everything, sleep sleep techniques, relaxation techniques, acting and, classes, you know. And this everything. is around age 10? I'm gonna say seven to nine. And okay. within those years, we started doing medica medication trials. And she went through trying so many that were terrible for her that I almost feel remiss, like I may have made the wrong decision too soon. She was so young and there really were not that many studies on how many of these drugs affected the children's brains long-term. Right. So I, that made me very nervous. She really got to the point where she was just so disruptive and dysregulated all the time and that everyone in our house felt like we were walking on eggshells yeah. and she freaked out one day and said to me mommy I, I've gotten to the point where I can't control my emotions anymore I can't control my problems anymore you need to help me you need to help me and I'm like yeah. oh my god like in panic mode what do I do like I think I've tried everything what is next and it's so heartbreaking to hear your 10-year-old tell you that she's aware that she's got problems, first of all, mm -hmm. and that she cannot control them anymore. It was like my heart just like cracked into like a billion pieces and I didn't know where to start picking up, picking them up, you know, and we hired an educational consultant who told me all these great things about therapeutic boarding schools and all these lovely things called wilderness therapy. A big part of her story is the decision for her to participate in wilderness therapy. Yes. And I, I would like to, to go into that because in, until I listened to your podcast, I honestly knew nothing about wilderness therapy. But that's better than all the negatives that people <laughs> Okay. Okay. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, now I've had my own self-imposed wilderness therapy at, at times <laughs> in my life for, you know, a day. Um, but for, for actual therapy therapy right. uh, under, you know, treatment in a very structured program, I, I, I'm not familiar, familiar with that. 
you know, there is a very common misconception between um, boot camps and wilderness therapy programs. And I think there's been, you know, you say you don't have any like opinions on wilderness. That's in contrast to a lot of people I speak to who have negative associations with wilderness because mm. of camp thing, which is very punitive and wilderness is not punitive. It's all about support. It's all about like forcing your kid to recognize their accountability and the dysfunction in the family and that they can change it on their own, like self-sustenance and you know, just all these beautiful luxuries that we should all wish to be afforded at some point in our lives. Right. Total disconnection from the world, no mirrors, no physical contact. It's really about forcing your kid to face themselves. It's a far cry from Brooklyn, New York. I mean, that's another thing that I talk a lot about in the blog. It was such a profound thing for me to think about her being in the woods for three months, which is really what the commitment is. Yeah. Um, in total silence, no music, no phones, no technology, and what a luxury. No, no taxi cabs. No sirens. Right, exactly. All I can think about is the word luxury because mm -hmm. we are so wrapped up in our own lives and our own dynamics with our friends and our jobs and everything else and just being in the city here that for her to be totally removed and be able to completely focus on herself was just luxurious. Yeah. I wonder, you mentioned that people in general have some negative associations with either boot camp or wilderness, maybe partly a confusion of the two. How was your family and friends? Did you get a mixed response from them? That is such a good question. First, I am constantly speaking to parents who have this major battle going on with um, family friends who may have the same misconception. My parents have been so engaged in my daughter's life that they knew she had hit the you know real crux and climax of what she was going through and they didn't even bat an eye. Whatever I thought was the next best thing, they were gonna support me and take care of me. Mm -hmm. However, probably 60% of the parents I speak to as an advocate of people in crisis struggle with that same thing. Many times people have shared the blog or the podcast with their family members and said, thank you, they now can understand that it's not about me trying to get rid of my kid. Yeah, right. And it's not like you're putting them in the forest with black bears either. You know, this is this is wilderness. But I would have to think there's still a sense of control by the people overseeing the program, right? I mean, they're not totally in the wilderness. I mean, they are fully in the wilderness. However, it is completely structured and so well thought out. I mean, each moment of their day has a purpose and a meaning behind it. And it really is about self-reflection. And... Um, you know, if you could take the best therapy session you've ever had and multiply it by like a million, mm -hmm. <laughs> you might have one day in wilderness. A question then, there are adults supervising and yes. how often would she go more than 24 hours without adult contact? No way. No way. No way. Okay. It's first of all, the group of children that they're put with, you know, I was, she was 11 when she actually went. So she told me she had hit her limit when she was still 10. Her birthday's in May, she left in June, and I was very concerned with overexposure because she was very immature still in those ways. Um, and so I, my first three things out of my mouth to every place that I called was, I'm worried about overexposure to drugs, sex, and suicide. She didn't even know what the word suicide meant. Mm. I didn't need her being around a bunch of kids who had already kind of tried it and wanted to talk about it and glorify it. Right, that is a great point. And so I was really concerned with that this one particular program called trails north carolina they separated the younger kids from the older so initially and they also i loved it and then they also separated genders which as i know this is like not pc right now because of gender being so like irrelevant it was relevant for me because she was just about to get this like influx of hormones and i did not need one more weird distraction for her other than her being focused on herself mm -hmm. so that was important to me also. It is highly supervised. I mean, she has a she had a therapist who I still speak to now, four or five years later. And she met with her twice a week, maybe two or three times a week in the woods. And then she was with a group of less than eight girls, mm -hmm. ranging from the ages of 10 to 14. And then they had uh, staff members, which I think they range between five and seven staff per a team of eight kids 
So everybody has somebody to talk to all the time. Right. Everyone has support if they need it. Like there's no way that they had one second of unsupervised activity. Yeah, yeah. So today I went back and listened to your interview of Violet on one of your programs a while ago. And she shared, you know, some of the logistics of that. And, you know, seemed to be a very confident young woman, seemed to be benefiting from the program. You've now had some time that she's been in the program and come through it. Um, what would you say are some of the, the changes you've witnessed in her? I really do believe that wilderness was uh, like a diving board into the pool of healing and transformation. It did not encapsulate everything there because it's so removed from the real world mm -hmm. that she really needed the therapeutic boarding school afterward in order to kind of like solidify all the changes that she had made and make them more permanent. Uh, however, I can tell you picking her up from wilderness was like one of the craziest experiences of my life because she was still herself. She still, I could see was like experiencing, you know, some of the anxiety and upset around things that I would have presumed. However, her ability to interact with us in a healthy way and like she had never seemed calm ever. Like there was always an edge, no matter whether it was like a happy edge or a sad edge, everything always felt edgy with her and tense. And she was no longer tense. You know, throughout her experience at Wilderness, she writes you, you know, your kid writes you letters and she was fully accountable for the first time in her life. So you're talking 11 years of feeling like your kid is deaf to you saying this is not help helping It's not helping you and it's not helping us your behavior is so outrageous it is creating problems and you know she would always blame others or say everybody hates me or whatever it was that she was feeling which i don't want to invalidate however her accountability changed her belief in herself which you know relates to the idea of faith because she really could only control herself and i think she learned while she could not control anyone else she was responsible for creating her own kind of happiness and she was inspired by the idea of that and i think that was a really huge moment for her too and also she was given tools that helped her deal with the times when her upset became unmanageable and gratitude there was a huge level of gratitude like she even said to me at one point i know how much all of this costs <laughs> which sounds so like shallow and corny but she'd never been that grateful before yeah. you know and for her to feel better about herself and smile and it seemed genuine that was moving enough for me i would have just taken that if that's sure. what it was the only thing that came out of it i would have just taken that and the idea that she was able to interact with her siblings in a positive way that was also a huge one You mentioned several things. I'll highlight two relate in relationship to faith. I mean, you mentioned accountability and gratitude. And I'm curious at this point, not only with, with Violet, but with you, how, how this has impacted your faith, your own sense of what you believe and how you go about living out your own life. So I think I am primarily a spiritual person. I definitely believe that there's something exterior for me that is grander and more powerful. And I think like, you know, I know you guys posed the faith question to me and I looked up the definition and I spoke to a bunch of people that I know that are either really hardcore Christians or maybe like not as severely practicing Christians and then also some Jewish friends. And I think the idea of faith that really resonates with me the most is the idea that there is something else that might be in control that's not only up to you. You can only be responsible for yourself. And tying into the definition, it was the idea that there is belief that things can get better. Mm -hmm. And I think I really had to challenge my idea of faith that things could get better because I had been so worn down over years and years of struggling with her. And not only did her own faith in herself become totally like non-existent, mm -hmm. but so did mine as a mother and as a partner to my husband, as a mother to my other kids in life. I think I really was in a huge depression myself because I didn't know what else I was supposed to do. And I really felt like I had made yeah. mistakes. Because why else would it be like this? I, I think part of faith is being able to go from your short-term circumstances and experiences and emotions tied to that, to this very long-term hope. 
Yes, hope, hope, hope that things will improve. Yeah, like things will change. I have no idea how it will happen. I, I have a hope and sustained belief that it does improve. Yes, and get get much better than what I've been experiencing in the short term for months, years, even. This is a huge thing that I'm constantly thinking about because it really feels to me that there is a lack of faith because kids are so, especially with social media and all the like BS that goes on with this like total immersion with everyone else's lives every second and these fake ideas of what people's lives look like. Mm -hmm. I feel like kids don't have the perspective that faith gives you of this is just a moment in time. Mm -hmm. And Things, while they might feel terrible right now, even if they're their worst, that's actually a benefit to you because they can only get better from here. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, perspective is huge and faith definitely yeah. is an encouraging piece to me. I want to get back to wilderness for a moment because, you know, biblically speaking, the wilderness is a, it's a spiritual place. A healing place. Yeah. Yeah. When I hear wilderness, I actually think of spirituality and depth and uh, place of transformation, all these good things. I mean, that, that's where I go. Yes. That was Violet's place in the wilderness. You can't necessarily speak for her spirituality through that, but I imagine you've seen some change even maybe at that level from being in the wilderness for that period of time. She's such a hardy girl that she was into it. And I think that's really was like a cathartic piece for her because exercise is so good for your brain. Right. Especially if you have anxiety. And so now I am finding the pieces of wilderness that really fuel me. And she 100% is fueled by the wilderness also. Mm -hmm. And she'll say she's not because she had a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when I take her and force her to hike, she I can see she's clearly like a more whole person yeah. afterward. You see a skip in her step. Yeah, and she's able to enjoy it. You know, one yes. more point about faith and hope, you know, as a parent, I think you instill that in your children. I read a quote from some literary figure about planting a seed of a tree that you'll never see grow into a sycamore. You know, basically you're, you're planting a seed that you'll never bear the fruit of. You know, that is faith and hope. And I think that's what a lot of parents do. I mean, you basically, you plant seeds, you make as good of decisions as you can and trust and have faith and hope that your child will will benefit. Right, your effort will flourish. Yeah, and I, I would say your decision to have her go to wilderness therapy is that kind of a, a seed. And that's a mark in her life she will never forget. Never. Actually, I'm hoping to get her back there as a mentor this summer <laughs> to just oh, right on. refresh. Circling back to you a bit, what do you do for yourself to maintain healing? Uh, first of all, I am a therapy junkie. I have grown up in a family of therapy junkies, so I always seek out some sort of time for myself to either have therapy or like I work with a healer on Skype and just kind of talk about what's going on and try to figure out how to manage my interpersonal dynamics with my family and my friends and things that are giving me anxiety because I also definitely struggled with anxiety. I need exercise. And even though it sounds a little dorky, it like the endorphin rush that I get from exercise is so pivotal that if I do not exercise for several days, I see a depletion in my happiness. Sure. I also just think I really enjoy being alone. And so now that my kids are so much older and they go to school for these long periods of the day, I get time to be by myself. And that's really just healing and fueling mm -hmm. for happiness. Amy will be our first healing story, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> We've been on a few calls and, and texts back and forth about you pre preparing this. You know, as a guinea pig, I haven't been able to like speak from experience of like what other people <laughs> have done. But I am curious, what's the process been like just over the past month as we've been talking and you've been preparing? I'm like a huge definition and like quote person. Mm -hmm. And I research a ton before I try to write anything because it inspires me. So I did look up like the definition of healing on a, several different places, but so I ended up kind of breaking the idea of healing down for myself into categories. And one of them was the sense that first of all, something had to be damaged in order to be fixed. Mm. And so there's a sense of repair. And then there's also this feeling of a need to regroup, like someone that's gotten off track just needs to kind of regroup a little bit. And then 
this other piece that I don't think healing can exist without is love and nurturing. I mean, it's such a huge part of it for me. And always coming from an emotional place with my daughter and with my whole family of even just in communication, if I'm upset about something and I yell at them, it's not helpful. If I come from a place of like, my feelings are hurt because (laughs) I love you so much and you're killing me that you're acting like this, you know, that's so different. Really just embracing love and nurture in the mode of repair and regrouping is kind of what healing means to me Mm, good collection of definitions that you've made your own (laughs) you know it doesn't surprise me amy that you would actually research i i read (laughs) i read your your first blog post and it's like 750 words a personal essay and like an annotated you know totally if you want this link go on the website i mean it's wonderful I mean, don't get me wrong, but I, I, there's no way in hell I would go through <laughs> that much research. To, I just I just pop off the first 750 words that come to my mind. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have a very, like, uh, book-obsessed brother. And so when I started to write, and, you know, I'm not a professional writer, he was like, every writer reads five things a day before they sit down to, to write. And I was like, Whatever. okay, I'm going to do that then. That's exactly what I need to do. <laughs> And then I read that Stephen King book on writing, which is so good. Yes. And he said the same thing. Read a bunch of stuff and then sit down. Yep. So this is a good time to ask, in addition to your reading on, you know, specifically mental health issues, what are some books that have been impactful or maybe, Mm. you know, just a few? You may have hundreds, but. I have hundreds. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. I know the best one by far. It's called The Journey of the Heroic Parent by Brad Reedy, who actually was uh, a founder of a wilderness therapy program called Second Nature, who has now, I think they had like some sort of internal conflict. They broke up. It's now two separate wilderness programs, but his way of laying out parenting and how to interpret your child's behavior and to take yourself out of it is so profoundly moving Mm -hmm. and so well done because it's like really straightforward. There are not tons of like superfluous words. I loved that book. So was Brad a bit of a pioneer in wilderness therapy? He is a huge pioneer. He does tons of uh, talks and therapy support groups in the city. I think it'd be really interesting being in a city like New York and talking to people about wilderness therapy. Uh, because we hear about nature deficit disorder as a real thing, right? Ah. And I mean, in Indiana, we can drive down the road to a state park, you know, that's yep, 20 minutes away. Yeah. But in, in New York, suppose you go to Central Park and it's a beautiful park. You'll have to seek it out purposefully. And I think that's a huge difference. Right. So it would be an interesting context to be in the city speaking to people about wilderness, who, I, who I'm sure some people have rarely traveled outside of urban areas. I think you're probably right. So wh- where is Violet uh, today? Is she at boarding school? Or what's she up to? She goes to boarding school in Massachusetts, and she's been thriving. She's an amazing athlete. She's on all the teams, which I think really presents her with an opportunity for camaraderie. Right. She still needs that small class environment. She's still the same person. And I think that's actually a really good point to make because so many of the parents that I speak to are like, is my kid going to come out and be a totally different person? And I'm like... No, actually. And that might be disappointing after you invest all this money and time and the lack of physical proximity with your child. And the truth is, no, you're not going to change who people are. You're just going to change their ability to manage it. Mm -hmm. And that's really all we all need in this life. However, most people don't learn that until their 40s. But she still struggles. I mean, and all teenagers do. So Mm -hmm. I have to remind myself to be relatively cognizant that teenagers are annoying and hormones are crazy and they still are sucked into this little like microcosm of the world. Right. All I can do is expose her to more, greater, larger places and remind her to use her tools. So what do you do to capitalize on your family time together uh, with Violet and everyone there? So, you know, we had become 
accustomed to her being away from the family. As she's gotten older and been, you know, able to feel confident about her experience at her new school, she does come home a lot more often. So Mm -hmm. she's home, you know, for a winter break. She'll be home for spring break. She's home almost every weekend because it's cool to be in the city and all the kids that are Mm -hmm. at her school are in the middle of nowhere and they all want to come back to her house. Great. But do have to make a conscious effort of saying, even though you're out with your friends and you're a teenager, you must come home for family dinner or right. we must write three gratitudes every single night because I know that that's going to make you feel better. Or if she's in a bad place, I want to go back to the tools. She's spoken to her therapist from therapeutic boarding school, you know, so lots of that maintenance. You're doing good work, mom. I, I do want to circle back to talking about your, your work with the podcast. If this has become sort of a career for you and speaking to these things, a public speaker, all this. I'm just curious how this has developed over the past year. I think over the past four years, I've probably spoken to five or 600 parents. And then I speak to them as they're in this moment of crisis. I don't give them any advice because no one wants to be told what to do. I only share my own experience. I allow them like a sounding board to have some support and listening ear Mm -hmm. and love. And then um, I follow up with them. I have had so many parents reach out to me that I would never have known without having put myself out there. And each one of them says, like, thank you so much for being brave enough to talk about your struggle because everyone wants to feel like life is perfect and they're the best parents and their kids are perfect. And the truth Mm -hmm. is life is hard for everyone. I mean, I was in a group that I spoke to. There were probably 50 parents there. And I said to everyone, is there anyone here in the audience who has never experienced depression or anxiety or has someone in their family who has not experienced it and not one person raised their hand? So why is this something that we're not talking about more freely? Why is this? Why is there such a shame and stigma associated with the conversation? And I think that's really the most primal piece for me that no one should be embarrassed. This is a part of the human experience. Exactly. Life is hard. Life is hard. And it's okay because the biggest growth comes out of the biggest difficulty. So why are we shying away from recognizing what it is? Mm-hmm. Anything more that uh, that you'd like to highlight? You know, I do think a, a little piece that understanding whether or not my daughter was okay with me being so intimate with her experience and sharing Mm, it in public. Uh, So I can just tell you before I even wrote the first post, I told my daughter what I wanted to do. And she was in the midst of going through therapeutic boarding school. So she was like right in the thick of it and really loving all of it. And she read it and she was like, can I write something? (laughs) So she's such a verbal kid. I think she really embraced it and loved it and wanted to share It did change a little bit for her as she became a little older and is now in a much more mainstream school. However, she's still fully into it. Every time I put a podcast out there that I feel like might go a little too into her personal experience, I send it to her and I'm like, you need to listen Mm. to this before. And she's cool. That's good. She's a huge piece of it and does not feel ashamed at all, which I also feel really proud about. We both believe that it's an important mission. All right. This has been a great start to season two. Thank you for reaching out. Uh, we'll continue to listen to your podcast and uh, follow your work. So thank, thank you, you so much for having me. Well, Tony, that is Amy Carey. Yes, that she's a fascinating person, isn't she? She is straight out of Brooklyn, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too far from uh, my cousin Carl. Always enjoy going out there to to see my East Coast riddle folk. Mm-hmm. Amy is very passionate. Um, lots of smiles, you know, seeing her on Skype there. I really found it interesting how she spoke about when she had her second child, how you just naturally are comparing your first experience with your second and how that was actually really a strong indicator of red flags in, mm. in, in Violet. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that she has paid close attention throughout her life to, mm-hmm. to her mental health and did a lot of research to, to get to that ultimate decision of going to the wilderness therapy. Mm. And... Mm-hmm. 
really glad we had her on the show. Um, like I said, I had never even heard of this form of therapy for, mm-hmm. for youth. Amy has stayed engaged at a distance and also, of course, when they are together, you know, uh, sharing sharing a home because of that love and intimacy with Violet has been in a really good position to be able to voice uh, the concerns of a mother, you know, of, mm-hmm. a, of a parent uh, with a child who, who really struggles with uh, emotional control. Yeah, you know, it's very clear as we talked with Amy that she wants to be the best parent she can be for Violet uh, and doesn't stop short at any method of research, uh, therapeutic approaches, um, you know, finances. I can't fathom what they have spent in terms mm-hmm. of time, right. uh, talent, intellect, money. As a parent of a child with psychiatric issues mm-hmm. and special needs, you know, I found myself wondering as she spoke what programs that I pursued and if you know, we, as I mentioned with her, you know, we're all, always second guessing, you know, could there have been other alternatives that were that were better? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of our listeners out there who have children with special needs. And, you know, this may seem like a very radical approach. Mm-hmm. Many others have a very different approach. Mm-hmm. This is certainly not something we want to you know, put our stamp on as the way to go right. if you have a child with special illness or special sure. needs. But it is uh, a, a way that, that, you know, one mom and, and other parents have found mm-hmm. um, to be effective. Yeah. Uh, so we're interested in hearing from those of you with children, special needs, and hear what your reaction is to this and maybe other approaches right. you have found to be helpful or not helpful. Um, so visit our website, revealingvoices.com, and send us a message. Yeah. So Amy talks about you know the blog, now the podcast, uh, some advocacy work she's done in D.C., and really the through line in all of that is her support of other parents who have children who, who struggle with their emotional and, you know, mental health. It's great to, to hear that, that primacy in wanting to, to be engaged with other families and the joy she gets from being able to, to share her experience and, and even more just to listen to others who, who, you know, are in the place that she's been, you know, place that you have been where it's Mm -hmm. like, what do I do next? Right. And uh, sometimes you don't have the answer. There's not like the thing to do. I'm really looking forward to hearing her healing story Mm -hmm. and uh, hearing about her transformation as she had a you know growing awareness of um, you know the severity of the situation and and how she uh, was able to take on a a new perspective. You know, we spoke to Faith a bit in in the interview here and how she's really um, embraced hope. Well, thank you for coming on the program, Amy. And I hope uh, those of you listening have been uh, challenged and blessed and uh, empowered and gained insight into how you can be better parents and supporters of those with special needs, especially children. Yeah. Amy's work is at agirlino.org. Uh, transitioning to our next guest in April, that is going to be Kevin Moore, who works in the state of Indiana's Division of Mental Health and Addiction. We'll be talking about dual diagnosis, mm-hmm. you know, is fairly severe because you're dealing with addiction and mm-hmm. a mental health diagnosis at the same time. I'll be curious in just talking to him. I, I had some experience earlier in my career writing grants through DMHA that went mm-hmm. towards youth substance use prevention. And, I, you know, I look forward to kind of hearing how things have developed, you know, in the five years since that was part of my, my grant writing mm-hmm. and consulting work. I talked to him on the phone briefly about Columbus, Indiana, here in town, our um, new, it's called ASAP, Alliance for uh, Substance Abuse Progress, I think is what it's called. And that's really addressing uh, the meth 
uh, and heroin issues that we face just locally here in Columbus. Mm -hmm. I found that uh, as I spoke with Kevin on the phone that he has a, a wealth of knowledge about what resources exist uh, that I was unaware of. You know, I uh, in, in the realm of mental health, which which I research quite a bit locally and abroad, uh, things that I had made assumptions about because of things I'd read, he was able to kind of correct my my assumptions that, you know, maybe there is more offer than is being accessed. Mm -hmm. uh, so as we interact with Kevin, I'm, I'm eager to just put forth to him some direct questions that I've heard from people about, you know, what is being done yeah. and what can be accessed if you are a person with mental illness or uh, dual diagnosis or substance abuse. Yeah. I mean, people at the highest levels in SAMHSA talk about uh, the opioid epidemic. You mm -hmm. know, it is a scourge. It, it mm -hmm. is one of the most pressing public health issues mm -hmm. in our nation, if, if not the most. You know, there are people dying every day from, mm -hmm. from overdoses. And I look forward to having Kevin talk about the work being done to address major public health issues. Very good, Tony. Thank you, Amy. Very good, Tony. We're wrapping up episode one of season two. And instead of having a boring conclusion, we're asking everybody for five-star reviews because they love our show. We are going Keep to... Keep those five-star reviews coming. We're going to stay live, and, and we're going to encourage you through our own distinct personality every show. And uh, we, we figured we'd, we'd start this one with a reading from five-star reviews that we've or had. Or Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're up to 21. 21. I'm really happy with that. In one season. Our, our most recent one, February 17th, 2019, from Who's Your Follower? My Kind of Citizen. The title is Genuine. Five stars. Tony and Eric are the real deal. Both live with a mental health diagnosis and can articulate what that's like in a way that draws you in and engages you. I look forward to season two. That's really kind. Yeah, that's thoughtful. I, I enjoy that designation of being genuine, and we appreciate that you've uh, complimented us in that way. Yes. Thank you, Who's Your Follower. One, one other one here. This is from Badger Mike. We love our, our Wisconsin fans also. January 26th, 2019. Five stars. To effectively navigate this world, we first must seek to understand our fellow travelers. This podcast teaches that true understanding must be holistic. It must take into account a person's physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. Especially interesting and not immediately obvious are the issues that reside at the intersection of mental health and spirituality. Revealing Voices brings these issues into the open. Very nice. Yes. And that's our hope, especially this year we're introducing Healing Voices, and we, uh, we hope to, to bring those to the fore, uh, stories that people have that as they navigate through their own lives. Yep. It's been a good first episode, Tony. Let's have a great year. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. What does that stand for? The National Association. Wait, hold on. We're gonna, I'm going to look it up. NatSAP.org. <laughs> it's such a long acronym. Why it's would they make it so it's long? It's NAPSAC.org. NatSAP. Okay. National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs.